Urban Educator Podcast is designed to provide culturally relevant social and professional support to educators and community stakeholders in urban communities. Realizing that high-quality education produces intellectual citizens capable to lead 21st century innovation, educators and all involved in urban communities must be relevantly equipped with the necessary tools to educate all children effectively, but specifically those in traditionally underserved communities. Our future depends on how prepared our children are to lead it. The Urban Educator Podcast is pleased to welcome to this episode LaQuisha Hall, the unbothered queen of confidence, who goes far beyond what is expected of her. Recognized by President Barack Obama and several other policymakers, LaQuisha has won regional, state, and national pageant titles, including Mrs. Essence 2013. LaQuisha founded the She Rose Awards to give a platform to abuse survivors to share their own stories. Beginning her skills in mentoring at age 16, she also spends hours locally and abroad mentoring via her nonprofit program, Queendom Tea, the Etiquette Academy, which is committed to encouraging and teaching teen girls about personal safety, feminine etiquette, and positive self-esteem. She is the award-nominated and best-selling author of memoir, Unholy Communion, and a self-esteem journal for young girls, Positively Bodyful and the co-author of additional books. Mrs. Hall has taught English language arts at Carver High School since 2015. She also has taught at Rosemont Elementary Middle School, Forest Park High School, Booker T. Washington Middle School, and other schools in the Baltimore City Public School System. She holds a bachelor's degree in English from Elizabeth City State University, a master's degree in secondary education from Morgan State University, and a creative writing certificate from Wing Hill Writing School. I want to talk about the role of urban education and the role that educators play in urban education. So I pulled an article, and this article is by Dr. Cynthia Hudley. Have you heard of her? No, but... I also have not read this article for the record. Oh, well, here you go. <laughs> I made a copy just for you. Oh, thanks. But Dr. Hundley is a professor of graduate school. She's a professor of graduate school in the education department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, and she wrote this article, this journal. It's like a journal writing in the American Psychological Association Journal um, about education in urban schools. And in the beginning of it, she talks about um, serving students in poverty, families in those communities in poverty. Um, but I like how she calls um, this a myth. She calls the American mythology the American mythology continues to insist that education is the path to the middle class for those struggling to escape the grip of poverty. And that, that took me for a minute because is, is our role as urban educators to ensure that our young people can exist in the middle class? 
I feel like that's limiting to a certain degree. Like, is that mm-hmm. our goal to have them fit into the middle class or is it our role to just educate them, making sure that they can be competitive in whatever stage of life? Absolutely, because they may not have a desire to be middle class. And so I don't want to tell them that's supposed to be their end destination. Mm-hmm. Whatever your passion is. We've had pe- people, young people, come out of poverty and become multimillionaires, prodigies, do amazing things. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that middle class, you know, students who have come from urban um, education have not, but it's definitely not. It shouldn't be limited to middle class. It should be. It should be that we're preparing them to pursue their passion, mm-hmm. whatever that is. I agree. It doesn't even have to be a class thing. It needs to be more of a purpose thing. But the problem is our um, uh, passion is not taught in schools per se. It's more so a curriculum. It is. <laughs> yeah. Right? And that's why, like, honestly, honestly, on Tuesday, in our board policy committee meeting, the policy that came before the committee was curriculum, the curriculum policy. And, you know, I had to make a few statements to address um, curriculums having supporting materials that um, are not just reinforcing skills, but um, are enhancing a, a student's knowledge, a kid's knowledge. like. Are we just in school having kids memorize things? Um, that's very low in all of the levels of blooms, mass, all of them. Or are we really giving them skills to grapple with content um, and apply it relevantly so, so that they can read, speak, and write about it? And if the materials that we're purchasing and if the curriculums that we have aren't really doing that, they're just prepping kids to take tests, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like I need, like we need you to grow and map your map score or your park score or whatever the standardized test is, and curriculums are starting to be aligned to those. And quite, quite honestly, the Common Core, I'm good with the Common Core. The mm-hmm. reason why I'm good with Me the too. Common Core is because, like, no matter where you go, you still should have been able to receive this particular strand or this mm-hmm. content at this particular grade at this particular time if you especially for military families mm-hmm. if you're in Maryland then you get your family gets stationed in Virginia or whatever you know it's still kind of that common yeah. <laughs> course so I get that but I think we should take it a step further and make sure that the standard is there right we're teaching to mm-hmm. the standard mm-hmm. um, and not really teaching to the test and I feel yeah. like most curriculums are forcing teachers to teach to this test. And even in a lot of jurisdictions, your evaluation is based on that. based Absolutely. on how students perform on these standardized tests. So, you know, I agree with you. But I also think everything that they're trying to achieve with Common Core standards can be achieved through relevant curriculum. I agree. So, and I will push it even further. I think that you can. I think that every student needs to be able to demonstrate what they learn, no matter what the content is, through an art form. Oh, I, I think if you that. have to, mm-hmm. you know, do a dramatic, you have to write a play or do something theatrical where you have to act out a scenario or a situation or 
you're writing music, or if you have to do some poetry, or mm -hmm. if you create a visual art visual. piece mm -hmm. that, you know, I think students should be able to demonstrate their understanding of skills learned in any of the primary content areas through an art form. That's me. Can they keep art in school first? Oh. <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but. I agree. Yeah, I feel like the curriculum right now not only caters to the test, but also caters to classics still. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm tired of reading. I should not still be teaching a text that I taught 16 years ago. You should. And so talk about what, you, what you're doing with the, the cafe, with the, book. with the books, yeah. and how you actually, you know, came about, about that. Because I think it's really interesting, and for anyone that might be listening to this, I don't think she'll be angry if you take the idea. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Because you won't be able to do it like her anyway. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but at least tell us how you came about the idea, because I think it's powerful to give students choice in their, in their learning. Well, first I'm going to say it's not a new thing. It's not something that I personally created. So I was inspired by doing internet research, which is something I think more teachers should do. Mm -hmm. how you have to be inspired to teach creatively. Keep going off your own knowledge you're going to keep producing the same thing and then you're going to get bored so doing some research to find some interesting captivating ideas mm -hmm. bring to your classroom keep your classroom alive but um starbucks and i often shop at starbucks mm -hmm. just sounded like it was perfect for me the kids used to be walking around the classroom with coffee cups mm -hmm. so why not give them one too mm -hmm. Um, but essentially, my reason, they don't drink coffee, by the way, let me clarify. <laughs> They're drinking hot chocolate, hot chocolate, and they eat a donut. But um, while they're enjoying their refreshments, they are also looking through different texts to choose the one that they would like to read. Mm -hmm. I usually have about eight available mm -hmm. at one time. I let them walk all around the room like it's a library. There's no sit down, you talk too loud. I just freely walk around, carry your coffee cup, <laughs> do what you need mm -hmm. to do until you find the perfect book. And then at the end of the period, they reflect on why that was the perfect mm -hmm. book. Because you still have to teach them what to look for mm -hmm. when they're looking for a text that they could be interested in. Um, I also, let me backtrack a little bit, I don't offer the books that the school system provides because mm -hmm. they're usually classics, mm -hmm. they're usually dusty. Mm -hmm people or situations that they can't connect to really because of, it's not as relevant. relevant. Absolutely. Right. So I have spent a couple of months getting multiple copies of various texts. I have four copies of 25 different books mm. from um, a list through a group called Project Lit. Mm -hmm. This is a shout out to them. Project Lit. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it's basically a literary resource that a lot of teachers across the nation use to create book clubs. So it's usually a, a after-school kind of thing where they meet with kids and they read book selections from their suggested list. But what I've done is I've gotten all the books and I've put out multiple books for the kids to read and they get to read them independently in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So we read them every day. We have mm -hmm. book club every mm. day. Um, I also so, wanted them to read more than what the district requires. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in two months you should be able to read more than one text. Mm. And they've already mm -hmm. shown me that because we're ending quarter two and a lot of my students have already read three or four books. Hmm. So how do you align that? Well, a couple of things. But first, how do you align 
um, the Starbucks Cafe, the students choosing their text to the Common Core standards. So essentially, Common Core standards are asking students to read, write, speak, and listen a certain way. Mm -hmm. I have them do the same thing, they just have a different text. Mm -hmm. And I not only require them to do it the Common Core way, but I ask them to engage with each other. Mm -hmm. They talk to each other in class. Mm -hmm. They engage each other about the same text that they're reading mm -hmm. together. I don't have to micromanage the mm -hmm. questions that they're asking, the um, culminating assignment, the assessment. I don't have to do all that. They do it for each other in the classroom, which is essentially what the classroom yeah, should look like. Absolutely. Um, Common Core, not, I feel like if I can pique their interest in reading, now I've got, I have students who are asking to take books home, boys who have told me they didn't like reading in the past, but they do now. I think that is attributed to the type of text that I have. Mm that will get them into mastery of the Common Core standards later because mm. now I've captured them. Sure. Before, we were just trying to make them master these standards and they weren't even interested in the text. Right. And teachers struggle with trying to connect with kids or to make their lessons interesting mm -hmm. enough for them to buy into what they're teaching. I get it. So then. Mm -hmm. Second question, how did you fund it? Because oh, yeah. I know that you, you, being the teacher that you are, <laughs> you are our, our current teacher of the year in Baltimore City, you pay for a lot of your own classroom materials, right? But four of the same, <laughs> of 24 different books, I don't think you paid for that. I did not. Own, right, so how did you fund that? <laughs> so, um... I created a wish list on Amazon. Mm -hmm. I put the number, I put all the text in, and I put the number of each that I wanted. And I just pumped that out on my social media for a period of about three to four months mm -hmm. until every book was sold. Mine is like the last 10 books where somebody just said, can I send you $100 and you just get whatever mm -hmm. you need? So that money that they sent me at the end was enough to buy the remaining books. Mm. So people from the community, they want to see our students do well, but they don't often know what the step is that they can take in order to support that. Mm -hmm. When you give them a very specific strategy, if you purchase this book, you'll be helping an urban student. Right, specific. Then they will participate in mm -hmm. that campaign. I mean, I must have had at least 40 to 50 different people purchase a book, even if it was just one or two. And some people would say, I can only get one right now, but that's all they needed really to, to do because I had so many books already. So, <sighs> solicit community support. Mm -hmm. For your classroom. For your classroom. Right, not trying to do like a huge project for your entire school, mm -hmm. but how can you be impactful as an educator with what you are tasked with stewarding, right? Mm -hmm. Being a good steward over what you have the responsibility Absolutely. over, and that is your classroom. And if you participate through Project Lit, they'll share whatever your campaign is with their audience, which is very large. So mm -hmm. I. I was able to connect with a lot of other English teachers who bought books for my classroom as well. They had their own classroom to build. And I found myself buying books for other classrooms mm -hmm. because, you know, I wanted to support other teachers. So, you know, and when you build it, those people come back and they want to see the, the outcome of their support. So I have an Instagram account, as you know. Yes. 
Well, I share on everything that's going on with all of those books, and those people are so proud to know that they sowed a seed into what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So giving them that opportunity to further participate by showing them the outcome. And that speaks to your leadership and the, the power in teacher leadership, right? Because every teacher does not, especially in urban communities, particularly black men, and I know this to be true, right? People pressuring me to leave the classroom to assume other types of leadership roles, mm-hmm. administrative roles, uh, curriculum writing roles, mm-hmm. right? And I think that the true power of a teacher <laughs> is in the classroom. Absolutely. So I think, you know, especially in urban communities where you can be overwhelmed with so many different things, um, how do you still, you know, how do you still use leadership in your role as a classroom teacher? How do you use your leadership ability to influence other teachers that are right in your building? I tell people mm-hmm. all the time, the most powerful staff member in any school building is the teacher that has been in that building the longest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that teacher knows all the secrets. Mm-hmm. That teacher knows how to get around <laughs> everything. That teacher knows the best classroom management, generally mm-hmm. speaking. They know the best classroom management strategies. They really have the power. They, they know ge- the current students and their former students. And their students. former students who probably <laughs> are their pa- like their parents yeah. at this point. There's mm-hmm. a teacher here at, at, at my school that is, she's almost at her 40-year mark. Mm. God bless her. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> She knows several generations yeah. of, you know, family. So I think that mm-hmm. that's important. Going back to Dr. Bunley's, excuse me, Dr. Hunley's, uh, Hudley, Dr. Hudley, Dr. Cynthia Hudley, uh, her, her journal writing in the, in the, what is this, the American Psychological, Psychological Association Journal. It's their journal. Um, even though the beginning of it, there are a few things that I think are sketchy and controversial in what she wrote, there is one thing I want to highlight. And she says, she asked this question, how can public policy surmount the many barriers? I'm here. <laughs> I want you to see it. Okay, thank you. I was looking. <laughs> <laughs> she says, how can public policy surmount the many barriers to high-quality education for all children? the question. And then she responds by saying, building state-of-the-art public schools with cutting-edge technology to serve the poorest children is a challenging prescription in an era of declining public resources. We certainly know that to be true in Baltimore City. And contested political priorities. We certainly know that to be true in Baltimore City and in Maryland. Although the evidence is clear that a substandard school environment, like substandard housing, nutrition, family resources, and social opportunities yields troublesome academic and developmental, uh, what is that? Issues. Issues. Uh Uh-huh, we can use that. (laughs) There are other possibilities to consider as well. The other possibilities that I want to talk to you about are, you know, yes, we can try to tackle urban education and, you know, through our role as classroom teachers. Um, But we also have to take into consideration what she's saying here, too, right? Like, it's the housing um, department for cities, counties, urban areas that play into um, all of it. It's the political scheme of things, politics, and, you know, 
lobbyists and people advocating for certain amounts of money and oftentimes when you know oftentimes poor children poor families and poor communities don't have the voice at the table to um, have that same type of advocacy power and so then in a lot of urban communities we end up finding in poor schools title one schools underserved schools they don't have adequate materials they don't have adequate books we often find that in the toughest and the roughest and the poorest schools, you have teachers that are teaching mathematics on the secondary level that aren't certified to teach math or science that aren't certified to teach science. You know, and so how does that impact kids at the end of the day? So there are a lot of things that we have to consider when it comes to urban education. But on the same token, you know, how do we go further than the classroom? So yes, we have the classroom. We do what we need to do in our classroom. We raise the money in our classroom. We supplement materials in our own classroom. But you have a program, Queendom, right? You have a mentoring program. You have this nonprofit organization that supports not just what you do in your classroom or in your school community, yeah. but it's a bit more broad. Um, and programs like that can actually support what is happening in the public school system. Do you agree? I agree. Great. So talk to <laughs> us about Queendom. Share with everyone what Queendom is, how you came um, came about founding that organization, and how do you think that organization is impacting public education? Ooh, good. That's a heavy one. Say it, ain't it? <laughs> well, I, I could start with the first part. That was easy. So I, I started Queendom because what happened was when I started teaching, I had girls staying after school regularly to talk to me about those things that are extended beyond the classroom. Mm -hmm. Home life, uh, boy, relationships, uh, you know, self-esteem, their emotions, all that kind of stuff. They would stay after school and talk to me about it. So I was like, uh, well, apparently y'all must be easy to talk to. They keep coming back. So I, I turned it into a thing at the time. It wasn't queendom. It was just, you can come to my room. They brought story. more girls with them. Mm -hmm. they, if they had any friends who were troubled, you got to talk to Ms. Hall. Essentially, I wasn't really saying much in return. All I did was listen. Mm. So um, that following summer. And that's powerful, though. Like, yeah. That's just put a pin there, right? Because most yeah. kids, they, we say that kids are attention-seeking, right? Mm -hmm. And their behaviors... And they, get, they are. They are seeking attention. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my point. They are. So most of the time, we can't just be so punitive and, like, beating them, you know... Beating them the with head. the corrections. Right. That doesn't... They generally just want someone to say, I see you. And sometimes they talk themselves into the correction. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've had... I've had, uh, in the early days of Queendom, some girls say, I can't believe my mother said... And... She'll, I'll leave, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> or, or, well, I could have said, I could have did this instead. Don't, what you think, Natal? Mm -hmm. You know, they talk themselves mm -hmm. through it. And I'll just be like, yeah, you just said it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you could apologize and let go of your anger, what, whatever the case may have been. But, um, and also, when a child specifically, I mean, all people, adults too, but when a child can come to the, 
realization of what they need to do to rectify something, mm -hmm. that's when they really learn that's something. That's when they learned it. So um, I just provided a safe place for them to talk and not feel like I was convicting them for everything that they shared. Mm -hmm. And then that following summer, in my apartment at the time. This is before you were married? This is, no, I was married, was married but with, this was early in my marriage. This was early. Very early. I was in pageantry at the time. The girls was enthralled by what I shared about pageantry. I would bring my crown. They wanted to take pictures in it. Okay, you're a queen too. So, queendom. queendom. <laughs> and um, it's actually queendom tea now because this company tried to come for me and say I was using their name. But what actually happened was we were climbing the charts in Google and they were getting pushed down. Mm. And so they wanted me to stop they using queendom. But That's when I right. added tea, I still surpassed them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, I digress. Um, T stands for the Etiquette Academy. It's also an acronym for Talented, Educated, and Authentic, which hmm. is a part of the pledge that they say at the beginning of every session now, because we didn't do that when I first started. But I think it's important for them to know, even though we're getting ready to discuss a whole lot of issues and situations that you're facing at home, in school, or whatever, beyond the classroom, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. I need you to know that you still have the potential to overcome everything we're getting ready sure. to talk about. Mm -hmm. So... Um, now I have mentors in other locations, other schools who also lead the program. I don't have a set curriculum because I personally am against curriculum in urban education and in my program. I feel like if you're a real mentor and you know the needs of the group, I shouldn't dictate to you this is the week that we talk about sure. goals. Because right now your girls might need to talk about relationships. You know, I don't know what the case is. I tell them to feel the energy in their group and well, cater to that. Well, then how do you evaluate the success of? The girls give us feedback okay. ongoing throughout the program, okay. sometimes unsolicited. Okay. <laughs> okay. But um, essentially, I check in with every mentor weekly or however often they meet, because I have a couple that meet bi-weekly or monthly. But every time they have a group, I ask them for feedback and feedback that was given to them by the girls. And a lot of times we just collaborate on what's next. So. Mm -hmm. They'll tell me, my girl's really struggling with A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. Try this. Bring in a community expert to talk about that. You know, we cater to the group. And the needs that they are Which is yeah. what education should look yep. like. Yeah, I agree. So, um, if you, I mean, kind of we try. Because, you know, if you got kids that are on different levels, you're supposed to cater to that kid mm -hmm. in the classroom and be able to bring them to where they need to be. But I feel like a lot of times we are just fitting in puzzle pieces and not necessarily assessing the different pictures mm -hmm. that could mm -hmm. be on different mm -hmm. pieces. You know what I mean? So I feel like Queendom is an extension of the classroom. I do, and listening to you, feel like there's more that could be done to support home. But I have gotten great feedback from parents saying, I don't know what y'all are doing, but my daughter's not as angry as she was. As, you know, I always get feedback. I have parents crying at crowning ceremonies because they see their daughter dressed up in a gown and they get crowned. Um, can you invite me to that this year? Absolutely. Can I, can I come? Sure, you can come. Is it coming up anytime soon? It, or is it usually happens at the end of the school year. Okay. I, I got to look at graduation dates and all that because we do have seniors in the program. But um, it, it is very... I don't feel like we're doing as much as we can 
for the part that this author brings up as far as um, housing and I forgot the like food. Mm -hmm. I, I know one thing I saw was a lot of families are on free or reduced lunch. Yeah. We don't necessarily do anything specifically to support that, but what I do offer is inspiration for the girls to move beyond their current means. Sure. So they all think I'm famous. <laughs> I mean, you are. You well, anyways, I'm a regular person, everyone. I'm a regular teacher highest. because this is a podcast for teachers. Grace. All of that, <laughs> but you have been blessed. I live in a regular house. Whatever. And you I live a regular blessed. life. I have been very <laughs> blessed, but um, the, I believe that my blessings come from being willing to give. Yes. So anybody can receive the blessings that I have. And there are some people very close to me who are going to receive some very <laughs> <laughs> similar blessings. <laughs> so, anyways, I said all that to say any teacher can do what I have done. Mm -hmm. Even if you can't start your own organization to, to extend past the classroom, support someone in the building who is. So, I oftentimes, I'm always looking for help. There's so many kids that would like a mentor. But if I only have two or three people willing to commit their mm -hmm. time, we have to limit how many people can participate. Mm -hmm. And then also, maybe, and I'm just being honest, all the girls in the building don't like me or don't even know who I am. Mm -hmm. So if you're a great teacher and you're willing to offer that service and there are kids that do like you, it extends the program to a larger population. So I just think, um, but I, I want to mention this. I feel like we often ask teachers to do more, more, more. You know, like, I'm, I'm doing all I can in the classroom. Now you want me to go beyond the classroom. Mm -hmm. You want me to do more than what my professional responsibilities are. I would also like to see community members come in and do the same thing, especially those people who get on social media mm -hmm. and vent about the number of murders in, in their uh, towns. Um, the kids on the bus, how they can't stand the noise, they can't stand the behaviors. Brainstorm some opportunities for you to help make change. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a citywide one, but mm -hmm. maybe just your community. Right. The kids that live on your one little block that you already know. Mm -hmm. That might have asked, can they shovel your snow wow. recently? Because hmm. that's, that's how important. I started. Just a few girls in my class mm -hmm. that wanted somebody to listen. I didn't go out campaigning, coin them the first year. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're such a model educator. Yeah, so are you. <laughs> Thank you for so many reasons, which is why I'm glad you are with me right now. Mm -hmm. All right, finally, so we can wrap up. How are we going to get more... How are we going to get more teachers in urban systems, in urban school systems? Right? How are we going to attract and recruit more teachers to come into urban systems? And I'm not, I'm not going to solely say teachers of color. I'm not going to say yeah. that. Because okay. you have teachers that may not fit the same uh, demographic of the majority of an urban community. Most urban communities are black and Latino. Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. and you're going to have some people who are not black and Latino, but have a wonderful heart. They have the pedagogical skills. Mm -hmm. They have the patience, right? And those are educators that 
would be helpful. Um, helpful, yeah. In urban systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it is twofold. Mm-hmm. I think that children of color need to see absolutely teachers of color, administrators of color, school psychologists of color, social workers, nurses of color, um, so that they can, you know, identify absolutely. with them. That's that. But how do we get them into the system, right? It's, it's a lot of layers that go into it. And I'm, I'm going to let you talk. But I, I have to say this. I really think that colleges are not prepping teachers um, to go into, on a general sense, mm-hmm. to go into urban settings to really mm-hmm. meet the needs of the student populations that they serve. And I this agree. is how I know. I've had several interns, right, teacher interns, and they, I mean, outside of the content knowledge, which is shaky, the relationship, <laughs> I'm serious, the relation, the, the ability to, to, to build a relationship with the kid, it's not, you laughing, but I'm serious. Oh no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, you got to know what you're teaching about it's, before you come. And that, that is a part absolutely. of the confidence, you know. And I, like I was telling you earlier, I knew since the seventh grade that I wanted to be a teacher. I just had exceptional teachers that just had that it factor. Mm-hmm. Does that it factor come overnight? I don't think so. I think that people I think are, it comes through trial. Okay. So, like, if you walk into a difficult classroom and you got to find the air... Swim back to the top. <laughs> That's what gets you your it yeah, factor. Because I think I got it my first year of teaching, but in the second semester. Because mm-hmm. that first semester, they tried me, and mm-hmm. I felt I was sinking. But once a, a couple of teachers took me under their wing and said, you can't talk to them. You got to talk like this, and you got to mm-hmm. act like that. Mm-hmm. You got to present it this way. Mm-hmm. And I came back and did everything they told me, and I ain't had nearly half of the problems that I had the first semester. Listen, y'all, I walked into to Miss Hall's classroom <laughs> on several occasions, and it's just, it's the best place to be, you know, as a colleague, to just see her in action and to see how the kids respond. And, you know, a lot of people would not assume that classrooms in urban systems, particularly Baltimore City, mm-hmm. can can have a great climate. It feels like a classroom. Mm-hmm. Students are not running all over the place, mm-hmm. acting crazy and silly, right? They're actually engaged with books in front of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. almost every time I walked into your classroom, whether it was at the end of the hall by the copy room or by the main <laughs> office, the kids were always engaged, right? Mm-hmm. They, they might have had their issues. They might, right. Their personalities might show, mm-hmm. and they should, right? Mm-hmm. But... You just had you you you're just a model teacher. Thank you. Now let's go back to the point that I was trying to get to. Oh, the, the question: so How are we going to recruit these teachers, or how are we going to encourage teachers to come into urban systems? Because we need them, especially when we think of thinking about poverty, right? Mm-hmm. If we have a lot of teachers, particularly on the secondary level, that might have college degrees, but they're not certified in the areas mm-hmm. often that they're teaching in, it's still nice to have you. But at the same time, our kids are suffering at the end of the day because, because of their shakiness. Of their shaky. Shaky. So, one thing I do think should be offered is support to new teachers in passing 
the necessary test to be certified. I agree. I know that I am not strong in math. That's why I teach English. Mm-hmm. And it must have taken me at least three or four times to pass just the math part to get certified mm-hmm. in my early years of teaching. Mm-hmm. If you could just imagine me not passing that part and not getting certified where I'd be now. Mm-hmm. Because you know, they don't keep you when you're not certified either. There's a process in, that you have to go through. They keep giving you these little chances and probations and all mm-hmm. that, but eventually they run out. And so you, you're temp- tentatively losing someone, possibly, mm-hmm. that could be a, a great gain for your district mm-hmm. or your school. So providing support to them, um, not just in passing those tests, but um, giving people the truth before they even consider urban education. Like, um, I, you know, what we see on TV, outside of those movies, let me see how I should say this. <laughs> urban education looks exactly the way Lean On Me shows mm-hmm. that movie. Mm-hmm. And when you have the approach that Joe Clark had, Unfortunately, while some people might think that was too much, it is effective. Mm. Kids don't want, they want to be heard and seen, and they know when you get on them every time you see them that mm-hmm. you saw them. Right, right. So I'm, I'm very carefully phrasing these it. things. Because there are also movies that show urban education where people were effective, but they may have used unconventional approaches that may not really work in real life, even though they say they do. I really don't feel that just a journal will change the trajectory of my classroom in public education, especially when you have that child that can't write. Mm -hmm. And it would take much longer than they show in an hour and a half movie. Mm -hmm. So I don't care how much time they make pass in the movie also. (laughs) But um, another thing that I don't think we talk about often enough, and I'm only bringing this up because it's your podcast and not you know like a professional educational setting per se I hear you we our community people who live in urban communities people who look like those students talk down about them all the time Mm -hmm. in public public. behind closed doors in front of them behind their back and we often I have often heard people say I don't know how you do it and those people look like I've had parents tell me they don't know how to do it, wow. but I have their child in mm-hmm. my class. Mm-hmm. We have a mindset that shuts us down from taking on the opportunity because we're not seeing the positive mm-hmm. outcomes. We're already looking at the negative and shutting down. Mm-hmm. So when we change our mindset towards our kids, when we see potential in them, we see potential in our own kids, um, and change the way that conversation sounds when we're around other people who are agreeing with us when we make those statements. I think that's how we can recruit more. Mm. When you say things like, it was a long day, but you know what? I was so proud of this young man for reading his first book. Mm -hmm. He told me this was the first book he ever read Mm -hmm. in school, and he did it in my class. When you say things like that to people, it's inspiring. Mm -hmm. When you say things like, um, I keep buying these books and they not reading them and I'm stopped. They, they talk too much, they're always on the phone, they don't pay attention. That's what discourages people from moving forward. In so I think a lot of it comes from us. Mm-hmm. We will say out of one side of our mouth, let's get more teachers of color or teachers in urban education. And on the other side, I don't know how they do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't say mm-hmm. both. 
you wishy-washy, you shaky, mm-hmm. shaky. lukewarm, as lukewarm. the Bible says. And you got to get spewed out. <laughs> Absolutely, but what, what's really getting spewed out is our kids. That's the point, you know, that's it. But it's our mindset. Mm-hmm. And our kids sit in the classrooms hearing that, sit in the houses of the parents and families and friends hearing that, mm-hmm. and they grow up and repeat. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they teach. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And it's a cycle. It is, because... You were just as bad when you were a kid. We didn't do anything differently. <laughs> we just had different circumstances. We may not have had a cell phone that right. was as advanced as right. they do. But we fought. We stole. Mm-hmm. We talked in class. We passed notes. We mm-hmm. were um, not we paying attention. <laughs> Who's going to guide them the way we were guided? Right. We all had that person in mind that got us where we are now, and a lot of that came through education. We have to be that to ourselves before we can extend that past us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're always trying to recruit. What Do we believe in what we're recruiting for? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a, a big point. part of it. Mm-hmm. I really think that's the biggest mm-hmm. issue. Before they even get to college, there's a mindset that mm-hmm. has settled. Some of the students in college will say, I don't want to be a teacher because those kids are bad or mm-hmm. they don't listen. Or, mm-hmm. How do we change the mindset that we have towards our own young people? We have to stop perpetuating that. Mindset. We need to put out the messages because there's enough in the media saying mm-hmm. the opposite. There's enough in their community talking in the household saying the opposite. Who's going to say the positive that not only brings people in, but brings the morale of our young people up? Right. Mm-hmm. So until that happens, you're right. You're not going to know how they do it because they're not going to do it because Mm -hmm. you already talked them out Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you for this. I appreciate you for having me. Yeah. (laughs) What better way to end my my school day than to end it with Dr. LaQuisha Hall? Oh, here we go. (laughs) We're both on the way. Listen, you got to finish your dissertation. Oh, yeah, the pressure every time you mention it. It's important. I believe that the most essential piece of magic in the success of urban education is relationship building. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, let's build bridges, not walls. Dr. King understood that the best way for humanity to forge ahead towards progress was to come together and not retreat to our comfort zones. Our nation is as diverse as it has ever been. The demographics of school students across the United States is changing, and school leadership must be prepared to meet the needs of its students. The need for culturally competent teachers is an urgent one. Likewise, the need for compassionate and relationship-building people is the strongest it's ever been. Building relationships is key for achieving success in any industry. Building relationships is key in any classroom. A student will only allow a teacher to teach them if they trust them. Trust comes from a relationship. The following relationship building tactics are taken from Rand Miller's 
Building Bridges, Not Walls, A Common Sense Guide to Relationship Building in the Urban Education Classroom. Number one, treat all students with respect. In order to teach, you must have respect capital. In American society, we respect individuals based on their titles and or their positions, but personally, they might be bad people. Students don't value positions and titles in the same way. They value the individual over the position and title. Respect is earned by the person you are and not by what a title says you are. Number two, check your stereotypes and presuppositions at the door. Do not make any generalizations, racial, cultural, gender, economic, about your students, specifically when it comes to negative or undesirable behavior. In the same way that all white people are not racist, all black and Latino students are not, well, fill in the blank. (laughs) Number three, Learn every student's name immediately. Affirm the identity of your students by immediately showing them you've learned who they are. Number four, be forgiving. Every day, every student must start with a clean slate. Number five, do not provoke your students. Do not nag your students, attempt to intimidate them, antagonize them with smart mouth comments, do not whine, talk bad about or complain about students to other students or adults. Don't threaten students and don't terrorize students. Number six, use your discretion. Sometimes you must treat all cases and or all students the same and at times you must judge things on a case by case or a student by student basis. Number seven, in everything that you do, be consistent. What you do with one student, you should generally do with all students. And if you allow for a concession or two with students, try to apply the same thing to all students, depending on the circumstances. Number eight, pick your battles wisely. Not everything is worth fighting for or fighting over. Number nine, understand that different cultures have different norms for appropriate behavior. You might have to check your privileges or your biases at the door every day. Number 10, don't argue with the student ever. You will always lose one way or another. Number 11, model the behavior you expect from your students. Students need to see from you how you expect for them to act. Number 12, Being friendly doesn't always mean being friends. It actually mostly never means being friends with your students. You are not friends or buddies with your students just because there may be some shared likes and dislikes between you. You are a teacher, authority figure, and a mentor, always. Number 13, treat students like young adults. Do not baby them. While doing so requires responsibility and accountability on their part, you must facilitate this by not giving them too much. Number 14, treat your students like they're your own children. Taking this stance increases your patience level and your level of care. You must be matter of fact and relentless. Can't stop, won't stop. You cannot show your frustration 
ever. Number 15, throwing a student out of your room should be a very last resort. A child dismissed from a classroom should be for their own benefit, not the teacher's, and that it, it, it's really the absolute last option. 